And now, from the Room 111 Studios, it's the Retired Teacher Coach Podcast with James Sternovan. Hey there, listener. Welcome back to the Retired Teacher Coach Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I used to quip that we all have a shelf life. It's just one of those weird things I've said throughout my life, pointing to the fact that we're all mortal. But this is important. We don't age in a vacuum. Our cherished loved ones are vulnerable too. And here's the problem in this episode. If you live long enough, you're going to be confronted with catastrophic loss. This loss could be from the natural attrition of old age. Or it could be the result of unanticipated accident or illness. Potential targets could be a spouse, a sibling, a friend, a cherished pet, or even your children and grandchildren. It might not be death. It could be a divorce or an estranged relationship. If you're a retired educator, you will experience loss. I have two dear friends, both of whom have experienced catastrophic loss. Carol Weiss lost her husband two and a half years ago. Roger Roberts lost his wife just seven months ago. Both of these wonderful folks had been married for roughly 50 years. So think about that. You, you live this, with someone for 50 years and all of a sudden they're gone. In this episode, Roger and Carol bravely and transparently discuss their ordeals. This is a heavy episode. It might not be for everyone. I, I, I understand that totally. It becomes obvious early in the interview that their faith is their primary coping mechanism. I am cognizant that some audience members might not be so inclined. I respect this. I can tell you that if I pass before my wife, which, you know, statistically is probable. Uh, she's only a year and a half younger than me, but women tend to live longer. I mean, me passing before my wife is probable. If that happens, she will rely heavily on her faith. If she passes before me, I will take a more secular approach to grieving. Regardless of your religious disposition, the authentic emotions expressed by both Roger and Carol are universal and beautiful. Oh, and one more caveat. Both Roger and Carol make a number of local references that I'm certain will mean nothing to most listeners of this podcast. We all live in eastern Delaware County in central Ohio. When you hear certain towns or schools reference that sound unfamiliar, no worries. Familiarity with where these places are is not germane to their stories. If you have experienced catastrophic loss, perhaps this episode will help you. If you haven't, you probably will. Just maybe you'll be inspired to take inventory of the amazing living and breathing people in your life. I help retired educators make awesome health and lifestyle choices. My name is James Sturdivant. I taught for 34 years. I'm over 60, I'm in great shape, and I feel fantastic. 
fantastic. I would love for you to give my 12-week vitality course a try. So I'm offering the first week for free. Just head over to theretiredteachercoach.com and sign up. It's time for you to reclaim your vitality. So here we are in the Room 111 studios. And Carol Weiss, what's the date today? Is it the 10th or the 11th? What the is 11th. It? March 11th. Uh-huh. I'm here with Carol Weiss. Please say hello, Carol. Hello. And I have another good buddy here. His name's Roger Roberts. Say hello, Roger. Hello. <laughs> Roger used to teach. Did you get that? <laughs> that powerful hello? And it's one of those days, and I think my two buddies here are going to back me up on this. What's interesting about Ohio is when the first day of summer arrives in June, by gosh, it feels like summer. And when the first day of, of autumn arrives in September, and I mean, it's beautiful around here, it feels like autumn. When the first day of winter arrives, it feels like winter. But when the first day of spring arrives, it just doesn't feel like spring around here. It's just, it just looks like winter and feels like winter. And it's a beautiful day today, but it's 40. It's, it's pretty, pretty crisp, and we have spring in just about 10 days. That's right. Now, are you, are you backing me up on this? I, we, yes, we are. <laughs> By mutual decree. <laughs> well, here we're here talking about something just so important and and I want to start out before I, I even start talking to my wonderful guests about the problem that is if you live long enough you're going to be confronted with catastrophic loss unfortunately some people face this young in life but you're going to face loss that's just the way it is and I have two folks here that are very dear to me that have faced catastrophic loss and they're going to talk about it in this episode and I'm hoping it'll be a great help to my audience. But first, I have to uh, <laughs> have to talk about these wonderful folks, and I'm going to put them on the spot. And I'm going to start with Roger. Now, both of these people had similar work experiences, but different work experiences. So we're going to start with Roger. Uh, describe your work life. Well, I was a teacher at the Big Walnut System. I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, usually, and read the paper because I included the newspaper in my classroom, trying to bring history, psychology, and sociology up to modern terms on what was going on in the world. Then I would go to, I would eat something, and then I'd go to work around 7 o'clock, and while I was teacher, I would look over the plans for the day again and plan that. When I was in guidance, and I would go to look over the guidance plans for the day, and then I'd get into the classroom or guidance office, whichever I was, depending on the year. Yeah. Do my my thing, and then after the kids were dismissed, I'd stay around and evaluate things or do things that needed to be done when there weren't kids around, and then go home. Then uh, sometimes if there was an athletic event going on, like a baseball game or something like that, later in the afternoon, I would go to that for at least for a little while. On Friday nights, I'd go to the football games and away games too, and basketball the same way. And uh, that was my work life, pretty much. Well, Roger, we live in a small town, and Roger was, is, 
a pillar of this small town. And he made a statement to me one time, because we used to teach right beside each other, that really made an impact on me. And it kind of, your answer made me think about it. And one thing I want to say is Carol is fighting a cough, and so she's trying to stifle it right now. And I'm going to say go for it if you have to. We, we understand. But um, you looked at me one time, and I don't know what prompted you to say this, but you said, I like my routine. And it got me thinking that I liked my routine as well. And it was, it was true, it was predictable, but you could manipulate it in ways to make it a really good experience for your students. And, and, and you did that on a regular basis. That's one, that's one perspective you had one time that made a big impact on me. And I thought it was really interesting how when I asked that question, you laid out a typical day. <laughs> if my wife were here, she would say that I was very routine-oriented. Yeah, yeah. And that can sometimes get in the way. Right, right. And we're going to get to that. We're, we're, we're going to talk more about routine here soon. But now it goes over to Carol. Uh, Carol, fascinating work experience on your part. Tell us about it. Well, as a woman, I was sort of a pioneer in my time as a Presbyterian pastor. I was number 40 in the world. Wow. And Wow. So, first of all, it was hard to get a job once I finished my seminary work because nobody wanted to hire me as a pastor. I could be a... Uh, assistant, I could be a Christian ed director or something like that, but not ordain me as a pastor. So that was that was one big hurdle, but uh, eventually somebody signed my dance card, and uh, I've been in the ministry now. This will be 55 years. Dang. So I've, I've seen the church in all its phases and sizes and stages, and um, I have retired twice, <laughs> um, and I'm not retired right no, now because in November, a congregation that was struggling and hurting and um, headed down the chute asked me just to fill in for a week, and after three weeks, they gave me a six-month contract uh, while they try to get their act together and search for their next pastor. Um, I've been on multiple staffs. Uh, I've been an interim, which is just a short-termer. Um, I've been sent into churches just for um, the startle factor because people don't know what to do with a woman minister. Still. <laughs> Still, yeah. that's right. right. And especially in central Ohio. Um, but it's, it's been exciting and I was blessed to have 15 years at a solo congregation in a semi-rural setting. Um, and it allowed me and forced me to be my best self because I literally unlocked the door at the beginning of the week and locked it at the end of the week. And I was responsible for everything. So that took me to monitoring seminary students, handling grief, um, going on death calls, um, 
working to better the community in which I live by helping start Big Walnut Friends Who Share, which is a uh, non-for-profit uh, helping organization that receives no federal funding and is based all on cooperative work of the community. So those are things that I feel really good about. And then the final thing that I did was become a, uh, a counselor for um, women all over Ohio who might be contemplating an abortion. And I was on 24-hour notice so that a woman could call me and talk through, regardless of her religious um, religious preference, she could talk through the ramifications of abortion and what God was going to do with her and all of that so that she could uh, carefully and safely explore what those options were. And I think that probably stretched me the most. Yeah. Now, it's so interesting <clears throat> because I don't think of Carol as somebody who isn't on time. And, and Roger and I were, were hanging out here, and it was 9, and I was a bit worried about her. So I gave her a call. Tell, tell us why you were late today. Well, Tuesday I got a call from a young woman in the congregation that I'm currently serving. And I didn't know her. She didn't know me. Uh, she had ties to a former pastor. And that's who she was searching for. But when she realized he wasn't around, she hollered help. Um, so I took her call, and she said she was at Mount Carmel East, and that her father... Uh, who was 80, was mm -hmm. dying, and that they had called her in the middle of the night and said it would be within the next 24 hours. And would I please come and administer last rites? Wow. So um, I did that and in the process got to know her and her brother and, um, and more about, and about her father. And then early this morning, I got the call that he had died, and so I was trying to get dressed to come here, Yeah. yeah. but uh, she was really broken up, and I knew I just had to listen and let her vent, and, you know, till she calmed down, and then we could make some arrangements, so that's where I was. That's amazing, and uh, Carol, you're so good at this because... You were like about the third or fourth face I saw when my father passed. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yep, you were there. You you were just amazing. So and and we're not going to get into <laughs> because we'll be here talking about it all day. But Carol had my dad as a teacher many many moons ago, and um, so that's that's incredible. Now I did the math real quick while you were talking. So 1967, you graduated from. Pittsburgh Theologic Seminary? Mm-hmm. That's right. And I bet there weren't many classmates no. <laughs> or females. No. There were there were, any? There were 140 students in, in my class. No, in the seminary. I'm sorry, at the yeah. seminary. And 14 of us were female. Well, that's more than I thought. I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say two or three. <laughs> yeah, but I was the only one going for the Masters of Divinity. The rest were all... Christian educators or social workers, because yeah. Pittsburgh Seminary had a joint program with University of Pittsburgh 
uh, that you could get your master's in theology and your master's in social work. Okay. Now, quickly, because I want to get to our really important topics today. I mean, that, that are really going to help people. But I just want you both briefly to talk about the big time adjustment you had to make when you became a retired person. And I think Carol's uh, solution is just to work harder. <laughs> but Raj, go ahead. What was uh, that? Ha I mean, because you as a man of routine, all of a sudden that routine was gone. That had to be a big adjustment. Well, and that's what people encouraged me to do to try to keep a routine very similar to what I was doing before. So I, for a number of years, I don't do it now, but mm -hmm. for a number of years, I would get up at five o'clock, right. read the newspaper, yeah, and oftentimes say, well, this would be a good story for psychology yeah. class or world history. Right. Then uh, around seven o'clock in the morning, I would go down, this at this time, I'd go down to Westerville to the community center and work out. Right. And then I'd come home in the afternoon and do chores around the house or whatever. And I also found myself doing a lot of walking. No, you you went down to the rec center, but then on your way back, you stopped at Tim Hortons and had coffee with <laughs> Jerry Renzi. <laughs> I had coffee with Jerry Renzi, but never down in Westerville. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, that's so I tried to keep a routine time-wise on what I was doing. Did it work? Yeah, it kept me go going pretty good, and I I still I, I felt healthier. Did Did you miss working? I missed it quite a bit, actually. Yeah, I could have stayed on four or five more years, mm -hmm. but I had a couple little health things taking place, and I said. <laughs> You can spend too much time at this place, and then people begin to wonder when you're gonna get out, and you, sure. you know you get blue fingers from holding on. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be the first. I was in guidance my last three years, and I wanted to be the first to leave that office. Okay. Instead of I didn't want to have to train a new guidance counselor or a new secretary, and so I wanted it to be a surprise to people. And uh, so, but I I didn't. Uh, get out because I was overwhelmed. I could have stayed. Yeah. So it was a big adjustment. Yes. Okay, yeah. now Carol, you're somebody that has worked a lot since you retired whenever that really happened, but you're not working as much, right? Right. So that had to be an adjustment. Sure, well, and, and first I went cold turkey uh, when I retired in 2008. Right. For a year, I was out of the ministry and uh, I was doing things with my husband who was also a retired pastor and the thing I missed most were people so you missed it it was a, it was tough oh, for you oh very very tough because all of a sudden I was uh, chopped liver I mean my phone didn't ring right. um, I didn't have people seeking me out um, I didn't have uh, the discipline of studying to prepare for a sermon or a class. And uh, instead, I was oriented entirely toward my husband. But unfortunately, my husband's health was decreasing quicker than what we thought. Yeah. And uh, it, it was tough. It was tough. Now, that's an interesting statement. So you had this drive to 
reconnect. Yes. But you had this responsibility. Right. So that was a conflict. Sure. It really was because I took seriously my commitment to my husband. Mm -hmm. And um, when he died, we were married 49 plus years. I am still angry at him because we didn't make it to 50. But he always told me he didn't want to be married to an older woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect segue. So you both have lost a spouse. I want you to, A, that's the significant loss that we're talking about. And, and that, that's a big one. I mean, losing a child, losing a spouse, those are catastrophic losses for anyone. So I want you to, A, tell me when your spouse passed, and then tell my audience anything that you want about your spouse. And we'll start with Carol this time and then go back to Roger. Okay, my husband died three and a half years ago. Uh, as I said, he was a Presbyterian pastor. And by mm -hmm. golly, he died on a Sunday morning, uh. one minute after midnight, on his birthday. Yeah. And... Yeah. and How old would he have been? How? Let's see. Let me let me think a minute. I have to subtract. And all. Oh, he was he was exactly eighty two that day, wow. eighty two, and the tough thing was that for six years he quit trying. He just gave up on life. Uh -huh. And my husband, for me, had always been my gentle giant. Right. And he was the one I turned to, and he was the anchor for our family. And he was wise, he was six foot four, and I always told people I thought highly of him because I had to, I'm only five foot four. But um, once I retired, he just climbed in his recliner, took the remote, and stopped living. That had to be frustrating for you. Oh, I, I died by inches. Did, did, did you get mad at him? Oh, oh my golly, yes. Uh -huh. um, I don't know, how, how free am I to say what I, can I say any swear word? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, one day, uh, this was uh, three months before he died, I had been taking care of him. We had hospice coming in. I had a hospital bed in the living room, and my adult children had brought my bed downstairs to be right beside him so that I could monitor him, plus I was administering his medicines and by this time he had stopped eating. And he needed 24 hour incontinence care too. And if you're six foot four lying in a bed, yeah. 330 pounds, oh. whoa, Nellie. Yeah. When, when he messed and I tried to change him, it was, it was brutal. But the worst part was he had agitated depression and he kept trying to climb out of the bed. And so I had to literally lay across him so he would stay in the bed. And one night, repeatedly, repeatedly, he soiled himself and he oh, yeah. kept trying to get out of bed and slid off the bed and it, it was really rough. And the next morning when my son came over to uh, take on the watch, I went outside and walked on the trestle behind our house and I I swore at God, I says, God, how long can this go on for him and for me? Yeah. I said, this is not right. And I said, I've had it. And I said, God damn it, mm -hmm. uh, stop, stop. Mm -hmm. And 
Can't you give me some answer? And there was silence, absolute silence. And as I walked across the trestle, all of a sudden I thought, oh, Carol, you dummy. That's how God answered Job when Job was had lost everything. Mm-hmm. And he said, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Give me an answer. Give me an answer. And God gave him silence. Mm-hmm. But Job knew that God was there. So I knew God was there. And so I said, okay, damn it. I'll go back in for another day. Mm-hmm. And three days later, Wayne died. That's incredible. So he he took you he took you it took him a long time to die oh gosh and what's crazy about that carol is when you talk about how he he gave he given up mhm but yet he lingered which it sometimes doesn't happen that's interesting he must have been a pretty tough guy well he was but the thing that i began to realize is that my wonderful a huge athletic husband, invincible, was scared to death. Sure. Literally. Yeah. And he was afraid to let go. Now, okay, you've, you've talked about your husband and, and the end, but I bet pretty soon after that, those memories started to become less important, and the memories of him and his prime became more prominent. Well, I'd like to say yes, because that would sound good in a book or something, but that's uh-huh. not true, okay. because it took me two years to unpack oh, wow. my adult children yeah. from some of the damage that had been done, particularly with the three male offsprings, Yeah, as to what, uh, how they never felt they had their father's approval. Oh, boy. And that somehow they had uh, God mixed up. It, the Trinity wasn't God, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. It was God, Mom, and Dad. Mm-hmm. And they had to unpack that. And I'm so you are busy right now. As soon as as soon as he's gone, you're doing more caretaking. Yeah. And at first, in my own anger and hurt and frustration, I didn't I didn't hear what they were saying. And I, I sent my oldest son to a uh, excellent counselor because I couldn't process what he was saying. And it's only as he delightfully and trustingly would unpack in front of me what he discovered. Uh-huh. And so then, um, and then this oldest son rediscovered his faith. And so We've been having good faith conversations, Bible conversations, uh, but uh, psychological conversations and all of that. And one of the things that they taught me is, um, you know, that little sign that says, I am not totally, completely, um, whatever, responsible for everything. (laughs) Uh, That's God's job. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I had to get off my right. uh, pedestal, thinking that I could fix everybody. No kidding. That's 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 a challenge for most parents. Sure. Now I think it's so interesting because when I project into the future, 
when when Penny, my wife, and I, when one of us passes, I mean, the idea that we're both going to pass simultaneously is... You're going to die. Yeah. You're not going to pass. You're going to (laughs) die. Okay. (laughs) That there's all this grief, but then your kids are grieving. Yeah. And they're still looking for you for support. That's right. And that's a heavy burden. But the best thing is to grieve in front of them. I, I, I... Grieve in front of them so that they have permission to grieve. And, and I realized that as I vocalized my anger to my husband, yeah, that it gave them permission to That's interesting. look at That's interesting, their yeah. anger. And, you know, now, three years hence, now we can laugh and talk about funny things and good things good. and all of that about Wayne. But at the same time, the conversation will always include, but... Dad did have to have the last word. Yeah. Dad did. Dad, you know. My my mother, when she passed, was always someone who was incredibly independent and didn't want to burden anybody. Mm -hmm. But then that independence became a burden in the end when she couldn't take care of herself. Right. And there was frustration. There was like, you know. Absolutely. there, There was like, Mom, you have to think about us here. Yes. We're driving our butts off. Yeah. And, and, and not working and taking days off and rearranging yeah. schedules. And that was not like her. No. That well, was not like her to ask someone to do that. But she was incapable of taking care of herself. Right. And, and the thing that was interesting to me is, you know, um, decline takes sort of a progression in what you're doing. And I kept Wayne at home as long as I could because that was important to him. And then he needed hospitalized. And when he was hospitalized over Easter, just briefly, he got sepsis. Yeah, right. And um, what's the uh, C. diff. Mm. And so they were going to send him home. And I said, I cannot bring him home. Those are both so highly contagious. And I said, I'm old. Yeah. But I said, also, I have my grandchildren at the house every day. And so they said, oh, well, yeah, you should take him to a nursing home. I said, thank you very much. So they sent him to one near my home. Within four days, the nursing home called me and asked me to come get him because they couldn't deal with him. Right, right. My, my mom was similar. Hated being there and just was a real impossible patient. Yeah. So I brought him home, but the beauty, beautiful thing my adult children did for me is they pledged that every night at 9 o'clock, one of them would come and sleep on the floor in the mm-hmm. living room um, so that if, they, if I needed them, they were right there. Yeah. And also so I could get some sleep, too. And then 5 o'clock the next morning, they'd get up and make sure he was cleaned up, help me clean him up. And then they'd leave. And all four of them were working full-time. So it's been three and a half years? Yeah. Okay. I'm coming back to you with a question about three and a half years after the fact. Mm-hmm. I want to go to Roger because your, your wound is fresher. It is. Some similarities and some differences. How fresh? Seven months? Is that what you said earlier? She died on August 27th. Of 2027, uh, 2021. 
And that was exactly 50 years and eight months after we were married to the day. Oh, gee. Not too far from being to the hour, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess I could tell you this, and it was one, one week past her birthday. Back in 1967, I had graduated from college and was looking for a job. And uh, I had two interviews before this big walnut job. And I had an in with both people that were interviewing me, but I didn't get a job offer. Then I got this job offer out of Big Walnut which, in Sunbury, which is not too far from Delaware, but I never went to Sunbury much from Delaware in those days. I don't even know if I'd ever been on the square and I interviewed with a, a person named Highland Sodders who um, I'd never met before. And he hired me on the spot if I could get exempted from the draft. And I did because they exempted teachers in those mm-hmm. days. So I started a big wallet. At that time I was dating somebody and we were just, I'll say half serious, but for some reason it didn't work out. And neither one of us could tell why. It just, the magic or whatever was, all of a sudden it kind of dissipated. And it was like God was saying, okay, one of you can stay here in Delaware and one of you is going to go to Sunbury. Mm-hmm. And I went to Sunbury. Well, I was upset, you know, about that. And I asked God, I said, will there be somebody in my life? And I got an answer that said yes. But he didn't say when. So that was 1967. The following spring at a big walnut baseball game, I was standing there with our athletic director and some girl stood up in the audience and they cheer over there where the people were sitting in the bleachers and cheering. I said to our athletic director, who is that? And I said, oh, that's Eddie Hope's sister. Eddie Hope was a big athlete at big walnut at that time, a junior. And I said, oh, okay. That was 1968. That was that was almost not quite a year that I'd been teaching. Nothing happened for the until the summer of 1969, and I was working as a custodian there at the school in the summertime to supplement my income. And Eddie Hope was also hired that time, and we talked and played ping pong. And for some reason, he began to push his sister. I don't know why people thought we would make a good match. We were totally different in a lot of areas. I was wilder in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you. And <laughs> Betty was very naive, a non-drinker. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I had not met her yet. Well, he kept working on us, but we didn't get together even that summer. It wasn't until the fall around November of 1969 and somehow his message got to get with some of the teachers at Big Walnut and some other people including Betty's roommate at the time and they began to push to get us together. We met in in November I think it was of 1969 at Shakey's Pizza in Columbus and I, when I came in, there was a table. They were all around the table, and there were two chairs here in the middle. So I picked one. I sat at one of them. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon Betty came in, and her, her, her message was, 
as she looked at me and she said, oh, you must be Roger. <laughs> and that's how we met. But we still didn't go out until the following February or so. And we started dating in February of 1970, and I've never dated anybody since. Roger, why did it what? take you so long to ask her out? If you, if you, I don't know. If you went to dinner well, with her? Well, I, I was sort of dating somebody okay. at the time, too. And <laughs> I, I think How it was, many more signs do you I, need? I, I'll tell you the honest about <laughs> it. I think God was directing all this. Okay. And it wasn't quite time for us. Right. I was still too wild. And she was not, so we got. We and so got you together. made her wild. <laughs> no, not not really. So we got together and we got married then in in December on December twenty seventh of nineteen seventy. Okay. And I was at that time. I felt I all these years I was adopted by her big family. Yeah. And brought in her father was a was a choir director at the church Methodist Church in Sunbury, and. He was a big shot in town, big, uh, a major person in the community, and I felt adopted. I got adopted by her family and adopted by the big walnut community, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I've been there ever since. Betty was, as I said, she was different than I was in a lot of areas. She was a little naive on some things. Um, she her. She conducted herself properly in, in a lot of things. Um, she was the organist at our church for 33 years mm -hmm. plus. She also sang in the choirs from time to time. She was a school teacher when I met her at Gehanna Lincoln. Or, that was one of the elementary schools she was at. She was at two elementary schools down there at one time or another. And then she... Um, when, our, when we started having children, she retired from teaching and was stayed at home and raised her children and gave piano lessons and, and was the organist at the church. Then when our kids grew up a little longer, she eventually got a job as a librarian aide at Harrison Street Elementary. And she really shined at that job. That was her, she really loved that and was, was really good at it. And um, we continued on and, and um, raised her family, went to family reunions. Uh, I, I, I really loved her mother and father. Uh, we were just a very, very good, close family. And when my mom died, my mother-in-law became like my mother. My father-in-law was like my father, who died when I was eight years old, just barely eight. Yeah. And so he became, became a father that, that I didn't have. But uh, Betty was uh, always kind of, uh, she was active in things, but she was off, always very careful in, in talking to her. One of the things she had trouble doing is letting go. She didn't always like to let go. And so that, she was never wild. She wouldn't let herself get wild. You know, you told yeah. me a funny story about her one time. You said that she was mad at one of your sons and he drove up and was ready to get out of the car, and you said she started uh, complaining about him as he drove up the driveway, just talk, just giving him the business, just telling him which way. It's like, Betty, he can't even hear you. He's in the car. <laughs> but, but you're talking about letting go. So, so she would sometimes get fixated on things? Well, yeah, but I mean, by letting go means like uh, letting herself get too oh, too excited over apologies. stuff. 
My she mom. always she was, was guarded. Careful. She yeah. was guarded. Yeah. She was very guarded on that. And then, you know, we lived a life of uh, 50 years plus, and uh, actually 51 if you include the dating time. Yeah. And uh, then in her, in her latter years, she, she had the bypass surgery, quadruple bypass back in, uh, I think it was in the 1990s, I guess. Wow. And she, over the period of time, you know, she had to be careful. She had a pacemaker put in. And um, then she so eventually, she had diabetes to start with. So she, her, her illness was over a period of time. Right. And then eventually she, got, she had kidney failure. So in her last few years, she had heart failure going on. She had a defibrillator put in along with the pacemaker. And she developed kidney failure too and had to go to dialysis. So and, you, were, you were like Carol, you were becoming increasingly responsible for her well-being. Yes, but I didn't have all of the, the problems that she had because Betty started eating less and less and less. Yeah. And she got down to probably less than 90 pounds. So I could handle her yeah. much easier right. at home, take her to dialysis if she, had to, if she needed help going to the Giving her help going to the restroom came about only in the last few months. It wasn't over a period of years. She, 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 quit, she quit eating much, and um, so, you know, I had the bugger to eat more and, and all that. And uh, in the last few weeks, you know, and she, in, in, in 2021, she had a couple hospital visits. One, one was to, she had to get uh, uh, a bypass in one leg because her... The, her blood flow was not very good and she was getting sores and she, she wasn't getting circulation to her feet. She came with, came within about two weeks of having to have her legs I amputated. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. But she got a bypass in one and then the other one they went through and bored out the blood vessel and, and she got blood going back to her feet again. So, But both times she had to go to the nursing home afterwards. But the, the last one after she came home from the last one, she fell in the living room one day. And this was, this, what, what had happened is several weeks before where her defibrillator was, I saw there was a hole in her skin. I could see the defibrillator in there. So the doctor said we had to go to ER. And so we went down there, the hospital and they repositioned that again. They, they, operated up and put it under her muscle so it wouldn't stick out through her skin because she was losing weight her skin was tight and they flushed that out for several days and she was in the hospital nine days and then she came back for her last stay at the nursing home and when I kept her there a week she was not she didn't every time you go in the hospital you lose a lot of strength you, and it, it's hard to recover it and she just wasn't recovering much from this last time. And so I took her home and it wasn't too long after that that uh, she had more and more help needed to get into the car, go over there. Eventually I had to put her in a wheelchair. And uh, the last time I, she got dialysis, she came home 
And that night she slept on the couch and she had these moon boots on because she had sores on her feet that had, you had to keep the pressure off and they had these moon boots on. And the next morning she woke up and she says, I can't do this anymore. She said, let's call in hospice mm -hmm. and go off of dialysis. Right. And we had talked about that before and she made this decision on my, we talked about it again and I did not try to talk her out of it, but we did have some discussion on it and we called in hospice and they came out right away, brought a hospital. I mean, they were fantastic. And she um, went off of dialysis and she died about a week and a half later. Yes. The following, the following Saturday, a week, you know. Not long ago. My it, was on, it was on yeah. her birthday. It was a week after her birthday and on our anniversary. Gee. 50, 50, 50 years plus eight months. And uh, she died quietly. It was a very nice, I mean, it was a peaceful, peaceful thing. She, 20 minutes after hospice was there to clean her up. That's what, that's what was a surprise. Then she, she had a little bit of vomit, a little bit of drooling and I cleaned her up and she just kind of quit breathing and her eyes went up in her forehead and mm -hmm. she died. And my kids were all there. Yeah, that's wonderful. And a friend was there. Yeah. And we had a minister there with, in real quick. And uh, her roommate that she had when we met came up. And so they all got to see her before she was taken to the funeral home. Wow. Carol, you, mm -hmm. you have been around death more than the vast majority of people mm -hmm. on earth. And, and you, you heard stories like Roger, but typically, not always, but typically it's, it's the woman. He's, he's not like out of the ordinary, but it's, it's more yeah. prevalent for the woman to go through this. Mm -hmm. But you, you've dealt with men that have gone through it. I'm interested here, how, how, what's your impression of what Roger has to be going through? as a man losing his spouse? I don't think a man really realizes how, I don't think a man really realizes how that person is the other half of him until she's gone. Yeah. Because um, she completes him and uh, particularly in the case of Betty and Roger, I mean, they were the dynamic duo. You saw one, you saw the other. And uh, it, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful relationship. And they completed each other. And now what he has to deal with is where's the other half of him? And where's he going to find that? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Um, and the reason I say it's more difficult for men is that men, even though there's, when there's someone like Roger who is a psychologist and a sociologist and, and also a person of faith, he's got a deeper empathy for what's happening around him and other people. However, um, 
men are not forced to be as introspective as women are. No. And especially in rearing children, women have to put their ego aside. And they have to keep trying to uh, walk in their child's shoes or walk in their husband's shoes to understand what's making them tick. Okay, when a man is deprived of that other half of him, that's hard work yeah. to um, be able to look at himself and look within himself and say, okay, can I do this alone? And what does that mean? And what am I looking for to complete me? And do I, in fact, have to have that in another person? Or can I transfer that to my relationship with God and allow God to fill that need? That's a big one. And you, uh, and you tend to look at women as just better at this. Well, they're forced to be. Yeah. They're forced to be. It's, and um, I really understand that because, like I said, uh, entering ministry when I did, you know, women weren't supposed to do that. Uh, I can remember as a kid in school being smart. Women weren't supposed to be smart. Um, mm -hmm. I always made better grades in math and science. Women weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I had a question, my mother's way, uh, she would say, if you don't ask that question of the teacher in class, you're going to get a paddling when you get home. Mm -hmm. Because somebody else in class has that same question and they're too afraid to ask it. Hmm. And so, you know, so I was continually being forced to be something other than what I was and, and, and being forced to try to understand why I had to play that game. Okay. Okay, men, men don't have to do that as much. Roger, you have had a big burden with the grief that you've experienced, but you also have two sons who are grieving. That has to be hard. You have to be strong for them or, or have they, how was that going? Well, I don't know that I think that I have to be strong for them. It's we do talk. We talk. We in fact we do a Zoom call every mm -hmm. Sunday evening, <coughs> usually, and uh, along with Betty's brother. And so, I think we're probably strong for each other. Mm -hmm. But I don't. I don't know that I. Well, they're fine young men. I bet you that they're. Uh, I, I, bet, I bet they worry about you and want to support you. Well, some. Brian comes up every weekend, though. We go to church together on yeah. Sundays. He lives down in Westerville, and uh, uh, the other one lives in Oxford, but they come up once in a while. But but the Zoom Zoom calls has put us together in a lot of things, and we, we, get, we can review a lot of things and look at pictures mm -hmm. and... and uh, old Hope pictures and, and family reunion pictures and things like that that I happen to have. You know, one thing that really <clears throat> that really surprised me when my father passed, and he had a long illness. I mean, it was a slow deterioration. In the hospital for months, all that stuff. And when he passed, I was driving home with my mother in the car. And she goes, I can't believe that he died. Which struck me as odd. Because it's like, Mom, it was obvious he was going to die, and he was going to die soon. But that really struck me that no matter how much you prepare or how much you think you know, it, it, it strikes you in odd ways. Mm -hmm. And so, Carol, how did your husband's passing, what did you learn about yourself? What surprised you? 
there are two things that I think about. One was um, as he worsened and we did have hospice care finally. Um, I bet that was a relief. It, it was, except when it came to when they gave me the morphine. And I administered the morphine. And every time I did that, I just, I quaked inside because I thought, I'm killing my husband. Oh. I'm killing my husband. Yeah. And so I had to call. I bet it felt better, though, didn't it? It did in a way, but it was like when you see your pet suffering and you know you need to take it to the vet and have it put to sleep. Yeah. And I was always the one that had to do that in our family, <laughs> you know. And it just used to... But but I would look at Wayne and I would say, Wayne, I know I'm killing you, but I'm also easing things for you. Yeah. You know, and so finally in the last week, I vocalized that to the kids. And I said, I'm having... A real hard time with this, mm -hmm. with giving the morphine, and I, what I needed to do was I needed to get their permission. I, I mean, I needed to hear their permission because, and but all th four of them said, "We don't want to do it." And yeah. Mom, you're the one that can do it, and yeah. uh, you know. And so then I realized that was true, and he was in his own way suffering, and I was easing him to be able to make that transition. Was he cognizant of what was happening and I want it, I want this morphine to feel better? But he fought me every step of the really? way. Really? Well, that would be hard. Yeah, because that's that's what I say to Roger. The thing that, that amazed me was how fearful he was. He, I would hear him talking yeah. to God when everything was quiet and he mm -hmm. thought I was asleep, I'd hear him talking to God. And he was arguing with God and he was saying, why don't you let me go? Why? Really? Please yeah. take me, please mm -hmm. take me. Don't, don't let me stay here. I, I want to go, I want to go. I, I don't want to be a burden. You know, he'd be yeah. saying that. And, uh, and then the next day I would try to talk to him about that. Well, he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want me to know that he didn't, yeah. you know, and, so finally, I said to him the last night, I said, Wayne, please let go. I said, you know, it's just Luke and me here, and we both know how much you want to go. Mm -hmm. And I said, please, just let go. And then I gave him his last dose of morphine then, and it was an hour later that he died. Wow. But, but the funny thing was, Luke was there. He was the one on duty, and he was awake. Chris was upstairs asleep, but when I gave him that lowest dose of morphine, Luke got on the other side of the bed, and I was on this side, and, and uh, he looked at me, and he says, how long? You know, he just said, mouthed, how long do you think? And I, I just said, soon. Yeah. So we're both standing there, and toward the end, their breathing gets farther and yeah. farther apart. Mm -hmm. You know, and and Luke would go like now, yeah. and I'd look at Wayne, and then I'd say, no, 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 and finally he had to go at least a full minute without taking a breath, and so both of us were leaning in like <laughs> this, and Wayne went, <gasps> boy, yeah. I'm telling you, we flew back, <laughs> and then and then he breathed for a while after that, and then. Hey, but but getting back to my question. Yeah, I'm sorry. In this process, uh -huh. what's something you learned about yourself? 
that I'm strong. Yeah, you are, man. I could have told you that. <laughs> well, you know, you laugh, but but the thing is, what hit me hardest was uh, a week before, no, two weeks before he died, because that's the last yeah. time he was conscious. He said, I want you right here, right beside me, right here. And he's yeah. touching the side of the bed, and I said, I can't stay here all the time. I said, yeah. I gotta go to the bathroom, I gotta, yeah. you know. He says, no, he said, you don't realize you're my courage. Wow. And I, I started to laugh. I said, what? Yeah. He said, you've always been my courage. Whoa. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing to learn. I, I was floored, you know, because here's little me, six foot four, and but but that's a powerful thing to learn. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That was that was a that was a gift for him to tell you that. Yes, and now, you know, two years. That was the other thing. You know, they say it takes two years, two calendar years, to really grieve. Yeah. To go through the loss, and I thought, okay, we're going to see, because I've read Kubler Ross and all those other ones, and you know, all the grieving books and that, and. Don't you know that emotionally, viscerally, it takes two years? It does take two years, no matter how... So you know what they're talking about. Yes! No matter how much you think that mm -hmm. you uh, know or understand or comprehend mm -hmm. the stages of grief, all this stuff, it takes you two years okay. to stop being numb. This is, this is a question I was going to ask after Roger talked, but it's oh. a perfect, perfect spot to ask it. There had to be some event. Well, maybe there wasn't an event, but there had to be some time when you started to feel normal, good, yeah. positive. What was that for you? Um, it was last October, and that was just one month shy of three years since mm -hmm. Wayne died. And I performed, performed the wedding of our youngest son, Luke, mm -hmm. who married... A man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Luke had been married for 14 years. Uh, when Wayne, uh, the, um, one of Wayne's last cogent moments was when Luke came home to us and came out. Mm -hmm. And Luke uh, just was so shaken up and was crying so hard. And my older son Chris was standing there and holding him and and Wayne was laying on the hospital bed, and when Luke got all done, Wayne says, Luke, come over, crawl on the bed here, because I can't get up and hold you, but I need to hold you. And so Luke crawled on the bed, and Wayne held him, and he says, I don't understand, but I know you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And that's the last thing that he said to any of the kids. Wow. That was the last thing. That's powerful. You know, but... Yeah. So last October, I performed the wedding of my son Luke to his partner. And um, Luke came to me right beforehand and he said, I wish dad were here. And I said, the normal thing you would say, dad, dad is here, dad knows, mm -hmm. you know, and you've got dad's blessing. But inside I thought to myself, I'm so glad Wayne's not here because he could not have handled this. Huh. And that freed me up. That freed me up so much that I thought, 
yes, I'm here and That's I can love Luke and Scott yeah. unabashedly, totally. And they had invited 175 people to the wedding. And I kept cautioning them. I said, you know, this is unusual circumstances. You're having it here in Chillicothe. That's, yeah. You know, all this. 160 people showed up. Wow. That's awesome. So in that moment, you felt empowered. Free. 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 And empowered. Yeah. Both. Yeah. And that's when, that's when you started to notice healing. I was free to be me. Uh-huh. Okay. But, but, but you really felt like, okay, I'm starting to feel like myself again. Yeah, yeah. And even bigger than that, Jim, I felt freer than I've ever felt before. That's incredible. Because I did always defer to Wayne's final judgment. Sure, sure. That's interesting. Okay. And so, and, and what's funny to me is that a week later, I got called and asked to preach at mm -hmm. a church. Mm -hmm. And I had given away all my books, <laughs> one of my robes, everything, because I figured I was washed up. I mean, I had no interest in it anymore. I didn't feel capable. Uh, I've been having trouble with my feet and, you know, everything like that. And so I was done. But in a row, I got three calls to preach. And then... I got called by our district lady to go in and help this church in Reynoldsburg. And when I went, I saw how hurting they were. Mm -hmm. And so I just said, look, you got Thanksgiving to get through and Christmas. I'll get you through to the end of the year because it'd be hard for you to get a sub now. Okay. And... I was hanging on by my bootstraps because I was trying to crank out a sermon every week and, you know, do all that stuff. And uh, and then they asked me to stay for six months. <laughs> so you you do, know, you and so on the way home, I said, okay, God, <laughs> we've been here before. You kicked me out of the nest. My grieving's done. My freedom's back. You know, so that... That's a powerful story, my friend. I, I love it. And, and Roger, you're on the spot now. I want you to do two things. I want you to tell me something you learned about yourself through this process. And then seven months out, you might not have any moments of daylight yet. But if you do, tell us about it. I learned that a deep, uh, I learned about a deepness within me. I am weaker than, I, I mean, I'm not this great big strong person out here. Um, and I learned the deepness of grief. Yeah. More than, I mean, I've talked to people, I've gone to funerals, I've gone to, you know, mm -hmm. people I know, students, all this stuff. And it's, and I, I, you go to, a, sometimes you don't have to say anything to people when they're grieving, when you go through line. Sometimes it's better off that you don't. I've, I've done all of that stuff before. But now that I'm going through it myself, I understand their grief. I, I empathize with it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Her roommate lost her husband in January of last year. And, you know, I was still dealing with Betty at the time. And, um, and you know, we felt bad. But I didn't feel like she 
felt losing her husband. Right. Now, right. it's not, two people don't, they, they aren't, their grief is not exactly 100% the same. There's always differences a little bit, but I, I do understand the deepness of it mm -hmm. a, a lot more than I ever did before. Why, why did you say that you learned that you're not a strong person? Where's that come from? Because I hurt and I grieve. But that, that's okay. Uh, I mean, and, that, that, but that's... I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk the walk. Yeah. I, I mean, and I ask for steps to be guided by God, the steps that I'm walking. So I'm, I can only go, you know, but I... Because from my, my humble vantage point, uh, you're a strong person. Well, I can, I, I can. I mean, you're open. I can. You're well, I can put aside things like that and yeah. work with other people. I still go over and see the dialysis patients that I got. Yes, to those that yes. are still alive. Right. There's been right. at least five or six of them that have died since Betty did. And uh, but I can, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can go talk to them, and and I can, I can do that. But I still carry the stuff within me. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's right. And I, I have not quit grieving. In fact, I will say this. For months late after the funeral, I actually grieved more than actually when the That's time came. That's, That's right. interesting. And, and I, yeah. well, one thing I want to emphasize, Carol has not, you've not really been in touch with Roger over the last couple of years much. No. Mm -mm. But I have some, and I know how busy you were. And how how much Betty's care dominated your existence has has that obligation, that busyness, that uh, whatever you want to call it, has that been a big change for you in any way positive? It has in that. On certain nights, I don't have to worry about getting up and helping her go to the bathroom and you things like that. I don't have sleep, to yeah. almost carry her into the house. I mean, those things. But those things seem to be so small now. Right. And there was a certain amount of taking care of her that I'll have to say that I kind of half miss it because at least she was there. I'll bet. I'll bet. At the time. Now, I... I didn't have the struggle that Carol had because Betty was small. Yeah. And I could uh, help her up. And we had a lift chair. Um, and, but when I look back upon it, sometimes I wish I could help her go to the bathroom again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah no. Well, and you were needed. Well, yeah, you were that's true. needed. And, yeah. and there were a couple of times, you know, one time, a couple of times when I had to get up a lot of times during the night um, <coughs> on that, but not always. And those things don't seem to be as bad now. I mean, right. on that, so it maybe freed me up a little bit on that. But I, I haven't had the freedom that Carol talks about yet happen to me, and because uh, I still the grief comes over me. It's like a, all of a sudden a net will come down and something will. Trigger it. I, I, I think that observation you, you made is interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm not in the same position as either of you, but when you mentioned that, those obligations don't seem 
as burdensome now, looking back, right. as they did when I was perhaps going through it. Now, here's, here's a question I'm really fascinated by. Are you optimistic? Well, I have to think about that. I'm optimistic kind of as far as in a spiritual life and looking forward in a way to my passing, although I would probably be frightened if I was getting there. Yeah. I, you know, you know, we can say all we want about, well, I'm, I'm and, you know, uh -huh. but uh, the prospect of it, as far as optimism, I, there's other things in the world going on right now which detract from okay. optimism for the human race and things like that. And those, those are bothersome too. Uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic of, of uh, God's care and the spirituality of it. I'm, I've told you some things that happened that I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure Betty's okay. Mm -hmm. I've been, had a couple little things happen that, uh, are that are kind of amazing on that. And that's, that's a big concern about the optimism. Um, I'm optimistic that my kids can take care of themselves pretty much. Um, but as far as, you know, jumping up and clicking my heels on stuff, I, I can't say that I'm That's fine. that way now. Yeah. I'm, I'm still, I'm still suffering. I, I still suffer grief mm -hmm. and it can, it can be triggered by, it can be triggered when I, when I raise the, the, uh, blinds in the bedroom, for example, that make, they make a little noise. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of Betty when she'd do that and I was out in the other room and I could hear it. Little things going past yeah. a place we used to go or doing things. And I wish I could maybe have a picnic with her again mm -hmm. or, or things like that. And, uh, sure. you know, I, I met uh, another teacher and her husband several weeks ago out at the Cracker Barrel for lunch. And then coming through there, the... You know, they always have a lot of stuff you can buy out in front when you go in. And when Betty and I'd eat out there, she was a shopper, always shopping. <laughs> and if we had to wait for our, our seats, she would shop out there. Mm -hmm. Or if we didn't have to wait, she would shop afterwards. And, mm -hmm. and just little things like that Where trigger it and it, and, it, uh, and, it, and it brings a little bit of grief. Where when you were there 15 years ago, you're like, can we? Get out of the Cracker Barrel and go home. <laughs> well, I'd wait patiently at the door, you're, or I'd, you're a good I'd, man. I'd walk around, or I'd walk around and look at some. They do have some interesting things to look yeah. at, but I, I, I wouldn't take as much time as she did. She always took her time shopping. Are you optimistic, Carol? Yeah. Were, uh, did that fade at any time? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, through those two two years, and and I have to say, you end up being numb, sort of numb. Exactly. You're, no, you're not high, you're not low. You're just here and things get triggered. And Chris, my oldest son, um, was reading a book and he says, Mom, he said, I want to tell you something. You've always said this to us, now I'm going to say it to you. He said, you have to just sit in it. Yeah. You have to sit in it. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, what? And he says, Grand don't Audi. try to fix it. Yeah. Don't try to fix it. You have to sit in it. And I thought about that, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, depression, grief, anxiety, fear, any of those, mm-hmm. you have to sit in them and go right through them. That's interesting. Yeah. That's Gina, a, don't fight it. That's just a, keep walking. Yeah, yeah. It's a great analogy. Well, I'll tell you what, I think you're going to find that optimism, my friend. I think that'll come back. It'll be I'm different. sure. I'm just walking. I told you that one yeah. dream I had, and I'm, I'm walking a path. Yeah. And I, I do pray that the steps will be guided, not by me, mm-hmm. but by the Holy Spirit, so that I don't stray this way or that way. But uh, I'm walking. I'm walking that path, and you know, I, I've I've read a lot about grief and a lot of other things. I even have mm-hmm. a I even have a little poem here. Well, hold on oh. for just a second, oh, oh. okay? I'm gonna prompt you on that, okay? Because okay. I'm I'm anxious to hear this. So we're gonna go to Roger first with this question, Carol. You listen to the question. You answer how you feel, move to do. But uh, my audience is retired educators. That's who's listening to this podcast, by and large. There, there's other people, but mostly it's retired educators. And some of the people that you're talking to right now have lost spouses. And uh, some may be divorced or live alone <coughs> or have never been married. Some may still have their spouses. You talk to whom, anybody that you want, thinking about that audience. And Roger, I, I really want to hear what you have to say. Well, first of all, let me read the poem, and then I want to read a prayer to the people. Okay. It's about, about sorrow. This is written by Robert Browning Hamilton. It's called Along the Road. It has to do with sorrow. Mm-hmm. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's beautiful, Mm. yeah. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. And so in some ways, I don't know that I want to give up grief. Mm -hmm. I want to grieve some. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of learning to that. But uh, those people who are still married, you're still living with your spouse, I will tell you I will tell you to learn to appreciate more what you have. I think when I look back, we tend to sometimes I hate to use this term because it's used too much take for granted. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes that, that happens in a marriage. And and when that person's gone, you appreciate you'll appreciate that person more. Yeah. And wish that you had said more, done more, asked certain questions, but really learn to appreciate your partner now and Pay more attention to them on a lot of little issues that might come up. That's that's what I would say to those people that are still married. Right. For those that are, have lost a spouse, Mm -hmm. 
I think the best thing I can do is read this prayer. This prayer was sent to me by somebody who lost her spouse eight years ago. And it was sent to her by a retired minister and the author is unknown. And I hope I can get through it. <laughs> it's called a prayer for the loss of a spouse. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for giving us as much time together as we had. Spare me now from the further pain of self-pity. I accept the fact that I have no right to expect that I can be so highly privileged, never taste sorrow in my lifetime. This is my time to experience a cross and I do so bravely. I remember with joy and eternal gratitude our wedding day. You made no promise to us then guaranteeing a fixed number of years together. I thank you for what we have had and I will not think about what we could have had. Mm -hmm. I will look now at what I have left, not at what I have lost. I weigh the fruit of our love and marriage in terms of years happily spent in our family, joys that live on in happy memories. I thank you, Father, that our marriage terminated not in bitter grief, but in sweet sorrow. There was no ignoble scene of angry parting, only the time-honored call of God who glorified our marriage with the call of eternity, quote, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. My tears are happy tears of love and gratitude. I thank you that our love for each other is still alive at this moment. I sense that I am surrounded by an invisible presence and power of an indescribable love. It is the comfort of your Holy Spirit. I praise you, my God and Father, for your goodness and mercy. I have tasted grief, but I will not have wasted this grief. It shall make me into a softer, gentler soul. Good job, my friend. In Jesus' name. Yeah, good job, my friend. You know, your, your two messages there really got me thinking. The first reminds me of mindfulness, about paying attention to everything, not just your spouse, but life's fast. And, you know, if you got your television on while you're eating your meal, you're, meeting a, you're missing a great opportunity to enjoy your food. And talk. And talk, like we're doing right now. And then the other thing about the prayer that really spoke to me was the concept of someone who hadn't faced much suffering, but now it's their turn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This inevitable nature of loss and grief does make it more human in the sense that you have company. You're not doing this by yourself. That's one strong message I got out of that. Um, Carol, yeah, what, yeah. What, what advice? Well, I think the main thing is that alone is not bad. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I think that's true of retirement yes. and true of loss. Yes. Okay. To be alone is not bad. Alone can be good because in truth, if we're a person of faith, we're never alone. Okay. And we, we always walk in the presence of God. And God knows our grief, God knows our sorrow, God knows our happy times, God knows our lowest times. And finally, we can be who we are. But we have to 
turn off the treadmill. Mm -hmm. And we have to let God help us rediscover ourselves, who we authentically are, and we have to allow God to keep stretching us. Because as long as we're alive and breathing, uh, we still have something to learn. Mm -hmm. Here's a question I'm going to ask you. Um, because both of you rely heavily on your faith. Yeah. And, and you said alone isn't bad, and I, and I agree with that. I have a, a member of my family who suffered a breakup. And the relationship would have been one of contention. Mm -hmm. And so my message to that member of our family is, you are better off mm -hmm. not being in that relationship anymore. Mm -hmm. But in addition to what you said about being alone was having that faith, what about for those who do not? For them I weep. Okay. For them I weep because um, there is a depth of understanding eternity. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that you actually totally are not in control that there is a higher power mm -hmm. that's in control then that gives you the permission to relax okay okay and that's what has is helping me through covid that's what is helping me right now when i want to go bomb putin and mm -hmm. take him out you mm -hmm. know um but but the thing is, ultimately, it's not in my hands. Ultimately, it's in God's hands. And I don't get out of this life until it's time. So what, what would you say to someone who is, again, someone who's agnostic, someone who just doesn't know, who's not, yeah. not inclined to hear that message? Okay, I would say, look carefully within yourself mm -hmm. and ask yourself, if you can admit that you're not in control, who is? Mm -hmm. And just use that time to look at that. What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, friends, this has been wonderful. I, I, hope, I hope it's been a positive experience for you because it, it's, it's a tremendous message. And uh, <laughs> thank you, Roger. And so now we have to, we have to say so long and do some, some post-game talking. How's that sound? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Sounds great. Say That's goodbye, great. everyone. Goodbye. 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 So here we are at the What You Can Do About It section. And I'm going to challenge you to reach out to a friend who's grieving. I bet you can think of one. If you are grieving, please seek a grief counseling group. My mother did this, and she was not the type of person to, to join such a group. And she told me it really helped. Uh, my mother-in-law's done this. She said it's it's really helped. And and I loved in the episode when Carol was talking about, you know, the two-year time frame. I thought that was that was wonderful. And finally, share this episode with someone whom you think it might help. This this message might resonate with them. Hey, congratulations on completing this episode. It was an intense one. And please go and enjoy the wonderful people in your life. 
Thanks for listening and please visit us at theretiredteachercoach.com. Listen to every episode of the Retired Teacher Coach podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Goodbye for now.